This episode is a follow-up episode of sorts to the second installment of Annotated, where Sharif and I went to check out one of Amazon's new physical bookstores here in Portland, Oregon. In the 16 months since that visit, there have been more Amazon bookstores opening up, but not nearly as many as some thought. Only 15 currently operate. Amazon seems to have chosen to focus on physical stores of different kinds. So we got a number of retail names moving lower, including Walmart, CVS, Walgreens, Kroger, on a headline crossing from Bloomberg, just a headline, that Amazon is planning to open up to 3,000 cashierless stores by 2021. Currently, we know there are four, three of them in Seattle. The fourth just opened in Chicago. You heard that right. That's 3,000. These stores are small and about making convenience stores better, not selling books, which you might think is good news for the rest of the bookselling world. And Barnes & Noble is making headlines itself, just for the wrong reasons. New details have been unveiled about the reasons why former Barnes & Noble CEO Demos Parneros was fired. The company alleged in a court filing Tuesday that the executive was let go in July because he sexually harassed a female employee. Parneros released a statement denying the charges, saying, quote, These false allegations are nothing more than an effort to tarnish my reputation and punish me for seeking justice. And all of this happened after it was reported that a deal for Barnes & Noble to be acquired by a mystery buyer fell through. But even though they have been embroiled in corporate drama, Barnes & Noble has rolled out a few new concept stores. These stores are much smaller than the big stores they've been known for, carrying only around 35,000 titles, when one of their large stores can carry up to three times as many. And lucky for us, one of our listeners, Maria, went to one of these new stores and was willing to report back. And so I'd never been there before, so I just kind of found a place to park. And I walked around the mall for like an hour before I actually walked outside and saw that it was outside. So that was really irritating, honestly. This new store is in Columbia, Maryland. And at 17,000 square feet, it's a little more than half of what their regular stores are. But even though it's a lot smaller, it manages to still feel like there are a lot of books, mostly because of what isn't there. It definitely just felt cleaner and nicer, and it definitely felt more up-to-date, and it did kind of feel stripped down, and it just kind of felt like they were going back to basics, like, you know, we sell books, here they are. You know, it, I'm not going to distract you with all this other crap that you normally buy at Barnes & Noble. And Maria says that while this new format isn't radically different, it might be enough for her to give Barnes & Noble another chance. I would definitely consider spending a lot more time here if it were a lot closer, um, I think it was about an hour and a half away for me, so I don't think I'll be making another trip um, in the near future, but I enjoyed the afternoon that I spent there, and it was really interesting to walk around and see what they were doing different. More and more people will get a chance to see these new-look stores. There are now similar stores in Hackensack, New Jersey, Vernon Hill, Illinois, and a handful of other wealthy suburbs around the country. But the question is, is it too little, too late? Hello and welcome to Annotated. I'm Jeff O'Neill. In this episode, a look at the state of the big-time physical bookstore, what happened, what's happening now, and what the future of the big bookstore might be. This episode of Annotated is sponsored by The Similars by Rebecca Hanover. Author Rebecca Hanover is an Emmy Award-winning television writer who is bringing her fantastic plotting and captivating voice to YA. With issues such as DNA, human cloning, and secret societies, this story is timely and topical and will appeal to a wide range of teen readers. In trying to give the book a futuristic feel, Hanover consulted with her engineer, inventor, and futurist father-in-law, Ray Kurzweil. 
Using some of his predictions, she was able to shape the world of the book into something futuristic yet believable. The fast-paced narrative and cliffhanger ending will keep fans on the edge of their seats until the very last page. Thanks to The Simlers by Rebecca Hanover for sponsoring Annotated. This is Jeff O'Neill from Book Ride. Are you expecting me at this time? Yes, exactly right. This is Mike Shatskin, who I have been reading for years and whose long experience in the book business and his candor about it I have always admired. And the first thing I wanted to ask him was this. How did Barnes & Noble get so powerful in the first place? What was it about Barnes & Noble that made it so disruptive? Because it seems like an obvious idea now, but it clearly wasn't. Well, the history of that is that... I'm trying to think about exactly the best way to frame it for you. The long and short of it? Until about 1970, running a bookstore was incredibly difficult. Not just the selling of the books but even getting the books to sell. What ultimately became the big five publishers were then in their component parts, and they were probably 20, 20 or 25 component parts, and there was no such thing as wholesaling, really. So the bookstores were all the many hundreds or thousands of bookstores were doing business with literally dozens and dozens of must-have publishers. And there were no computers. And... Books traveled fourth-class book mail because that was the cheapest way. And it took two or three weeks for sometimes for an order to get from a New York publisher's warehouse to a bookstore in St. Louis or let alone Portland, Oregon. So having the books in the store was really, really hard. At this point, unless you were coming into a bookstore for a New York Times bestseller or something, the chances are that the store wouldn't have the book you were looking for. You would have to order it. And wait. And wait. Matching individual books with individual buyers was just so hard, in fact, that any improvement could lead to a big competitive advantage. And innovation came first at the mall. B. Dalton was the tech champion because they figured out that if they put a sticker on every book, because there were no real ISBN numbers, but if they put a sticker on every book, then they could punch it in at the cash register and they would know which books they sold. This was a revolutionary idea. B. Dalton realized that now that they could see what books were selling across its stores in something like real time, they then knew what books they should be reordering and how many. They decided that certain books would be called model stock. And what that meant was when they sold it, it would automatically get reordered. The computer would just reorder it. So they would tell the store, you're going to have three copies, and you're going to reorder when you're down to one. From a book buyer's point of view, B. Dalton was suddenly better than most of the other bookstores because it was more likely to have the book in stock they were looking for. Because, A, they were collecting data about what books were selling, and B, would replenish stock before it actually ran out. This technology was revolutionary, and B. Dalton started to grow substantially. Technology also helped book distributors because they could then tell bookstores which books they actually had available to ship and in what quantity. Because believe it or not, before the book wholesaler Ingram started making microfiche catalogs, most of the books a bookstore ordered just wouldn't come. At that time, the normal fill rate for a wholesaler was 10% or 15%. So you'd get an order for 100 books, which you had to process, You'd ship 15 and apologize for the fact that you didn't have the other 85. Or maybe you wouldn't even apologize. You just wouldn't ship the other 85, and the store was left to figure out that it was, you weren't going to get it. So uh, Ingram suddenly was getting a fill rate of 
you're a businessman, right? You know what that means to profitability. <laughs> At 95 is bigger than 15. Yes, absolutely. Yes. And then things really start picking up. A more efficient supply chain opens up whole new opportunities for bookstores. And the next big player would come in the form of a college bookstore just off Union Square in Manhattan. Barnes Noble bought B. Dalton. The mall stores were suddenly bought by guys whose idea was bigger freestanding stores. Booksellers had now seen the kind of growth that could happen if you had more titles available to buyers. Not only did it mean you were more likely to have the book they wanted, but a huge selection of books was itself a draw, even beyond someone just coming in for a specific title. It's an idea taken for granted now, but at that point, it was amazing. There was an outfit called Bookstop, which was in Austin, Texas. And Bookstop was a superstore. It had, it had 100,000 titles or something, which was, at that time was unheard of. And it worked. The idea of the book Superstore seemed impossible because booksellers know something that most of us don't. Most books don't sell at all. This is a concept that escapes a lot of people. It's really, really important. Very few books, almost none, have a rate of sale in any store. They have a rate of sale per hundred stores, per thousand stores. There is a rate for there to be a rate there have to be a minimum number of occurrences in time, and almost no book has a rate in a single store. So if most books aren't going to sell, why carry so many books, knowing that most of them aren't going to ever sell? Although these numbers have never been published, and I only sort of know them by having had a lot of conversations with a lot of people over a lot of years, what you had to spawn was stores that carried 125,000 titles of which 30,000 sold. At this ratio, a store is carrying 95,000 books they know aren't going to sell. And why? Because if you or I aren't interested in those two-thirds of the books on the shelves, what we are interested in is the idea of a huge selection of books. So in the early 90s, Borders and Barnes Noble discovered the massive selection attraction and started to build out the superstore base. And it worked. Barnes & Noble and Borders are getting big and revolutionizing book selling, and this attracts the attention of Wall Street. So now they have the capital that you need if you are going to build hundreds of bookstores, each with more than 100,000 books. Barnes & Noble now just isn't in the business of putting books on shelves. It becomes expert at figuring out where to put bookstores, and not just at the city or neighborhood level. Len Riggio knew that at the intersection of Maple and Elm, you want the northeast corner. You don't want the northwest corner. And stuff, you definitely won't want the southeast corner because this is the way the traffic flows. And, this is the, and their people paid very close attention to that. It's become the sort of standard narrative that Barnes & Noble came in and ate independent bookstores lunch because of deep discounts or whatever. But the truth of the story of bookselling over the last few decades is this. Whoever can get the right book in front of the right person at the right time has the advantage. It was true for B. Dalton, and then it was true for Barnes & Noble. They were bringing floors full of books where they knew the most book buyers were likely to be, and they climbed to the top of the pile because they were the best at it, until getting books in front of buyers wasn't something you actually had to do in the real world. In 1995, Amazon.com got invented. When a person discovered Amazon.com, then they no longer went to the bookstore. Why well, go to the bookstore and order it for them to deliver to the bookstore for you to go back to the bookstore to pick it up? You order it on Amazon.com and you'll get it when it comes, which was usually pretty fast. So 
suddenly the model, which Borders and Barnes and Noble had embraced so enthusiastically starting about 1990, started to erode. Today, for most Americans, ordering a book from Amazon is the single most reliable way to buy a book. You can get almost anything, often with free shipping, at a big discount, and it will be on your doorstep in two days. It doesn't seem like any number of giant battleship-sized bookstores can compete with that. It almost makes me wonder how Barnes & Noble is still in business, even. That's a good question. If all that's true, why are they still in business? How? Inertia. Inertia. I asked Mike, if he were running Barnes & Noble at this moment, what would be his move? What does he think would make the most sense? His answer isn't reassuring. I'm not interested in picking fights with Barnes and Noble, and I also don't blame. And I and I also don't blame them, right? I don't think they're stupid, and I don't think they're evil. I think they are very. They are they are people who have done very very well doing something for a very long time, and it doesn't work the way they that it used to. And that and I feel badly for them much more than I than anything else. But if I own Barnes and Noble, the way I'd be looking at it is. I can extract cash out of them until I can't extract cash out of them anymore to extract the maximum amount of cash and, to, and you know, and gradually shutting it down. Now, if, if I have a brilliant idea of something for which a Barnes & Noble store is a great springboard, well, that's great. But I'm not going to pretend that I can come up with that idea just because it would be good if I had it. With that sobering thought, this is probably a good time to say that Barnes & Noble officially declined to comment for this episode. Take that as you will. Anyway, the question remains. If the trajectory of getting the book into the customer's hands as quickly as possible has, for all intents and purposes, found its endgame in Amazon, is there a future for big box retailers? A new entrant to the U.S. market has an idea. This episode of Annotated is sponsored by The One You Fight For by Ronnie Lauren. Ronnie Lauren is a New York Times and USA Today bestselling author who has sold more than a quarter million romances. The first two books in this series, The Ones Who Got Away and The One You Can't Forget, have garnered numerous starred reviews, were both picked as Amazon Best Books of the Month, and number one New York Times bestselling author Colleen Hoover said this of the series, It's absolutely unputdownable. Delivers all of the feels. Ronnie Lauren is a new favorite. The One You Fight For tackles a very important and timely topic, gun violence. The main characters, Taryn and Shaw, are both survivors of a deadly school shooting. And this story shows the many struggles survivors of school shootings face. Thanks to The One You Fight For by Ronnie Lauren for sponsoring Annotated. A few months ago, Indigo, the largest Canadian bookstore chain, opened its first U.S. retail location. And their idea for what a modern bookstore can be is definitely different than anything we've seen here in the States. Is it weird to hear me talk to you? A little bit, actually. <laughs> I've done this before myself, and I know it's unnerving. It's like, this is not a person that talks back to me. I listen to this person. Right. <laughs> this is Jesse Bogtas, who heard about this new bookstore idea and decided to do a little scouting. So it was my first time going to the mall at Short Hills, and I was completely taken aback by how upscale everything is. When you walk in, you look at the directory, you see names like Prada, Louis Vuitton, Chanel, Burberry. These are brands that I never saw at my, you know, hometown suburban mall. And everything is very upscale. Everything looks really put together and opulent. Indigo operates more than 200 stores in Canada, 86 of which are large format stores like the new one in Short Hills. By comparison, Barnes & Noble operates more than 600 stores. 
But Indigo's big stores are imagined differently. Here's a quote from Indigo's quarterly report last August that will help frame what they were doing. What animates Indigo and continues to connect us with our customers is our position as a place for people to connect, to get inspired, to be indulged. It is this position that is our North Star. When you walk in, you kind of get a sense that it's a bookstore, but there's something more to it. Rather than being in a library kind of format, all the books in the front of the store, they're all covers face out. So you get to see every single book that they have on display. So that would include new releases, staff picks, bestsellers. Those are all covers faced out. So it's a more visual and kind of a beautiful display of the books. But it's after the displays of books at the front of the store that it becomes clear that Indigo is trying to do something more than sell books. And then as you go in, you kind of see more of like the library type of format where the shelves are kind of stacked together. But intermixed with that library format is this interesting kind of alcove kind of thing that they've got going on. So the parts of the store are split into departments and there's actually some walled structures that kind of separate each department from each other. So there's a whole section just for candles and these candles are kind of like lined up against a wall. There's tables there and then they have another section for stationery. It's kind of set up in a corner by itself And there's another section for essential oils and humidifiers that's actually right next to the wellness and nutrition and mindfulness section that you might find. In the press release announcing the opening of the Short Hill store, it's telling that in the list of Indigo's four core beliefs, reading books comes last after families, self-care, and food and cooking. The way that they have set up these walled structures to have the candle section or the cookbook section, it's almost like a labyrinth. You actually kind of have to walk around the walled structures. You have to walk around the grand piano that's in the middle of the store. It is a little complicated. And actually, I actually have a map of, I have a map of their floor layout that I could send to you. And she did. You can find a link to the store's floor plan in the show notes. And after hearing Jesse describe the store and looking at the floor plan, I was struck that the net effect of the store is that the point of the store is the experience not necessarily finding a specific book. So you go there for something you can't get on Amazon, a nice time walking around looking at nice, interesting things, many of which happen to be books. I think it also adds to a certain level of coziness because everything's kind of in a nook or an alcove. It's a huge store. There's a lot to it. And I personally have spent a couple hours there uh, just kind of looking around and seeing what I could find, not really looking for anything in particular. Sometimes I am looking for something in particular, in which case they actually have electronic kiosks all throughout the store. And so you could type in the title of what you're looking for, and it'll actually show you a map of the store and tell you how to get there from the kiosk. A little path lights up on the map so that way you can find your way. So the kiosk helps, but it helps to a certain extent. It shows you the map and... Like I said, it's quite labyrinth-like. So even if you kind of have a general sense of where you're going, you might not necessarily find what you're looking for. Whatever the strengths of Amazon, it's hard to say that the site is fun. It's more a collection of links and info about buying stuff than pleasurable. And Indigo is banking on the fact that people still enjoy shopping under the right conditions. So this new store is set up to be, well, just kind of nice to be in. There's so many different tables, there's stools, there's comfy armchairs, there's a cafe, 
Um, there's so many different places where you could sit down and read. It could be a table where you're sitting next to other people reading books. It could be an armchair that's kind of just on its own in the corner of the candle section. And a lot of the tables actually have USB outlets and traditional plug outlets. So definitely, I think they're trying to encourage people to browse, to look through the books and stay for a while. And at least for one book lover, it seems to have worked. Is it the kind of place that could become your favorite bookstore? I think so. I think it already has. Um, wow. I've been there a couple different Sundays in a row just uh, just to hang out. It's just so big. I feel like I could spend hours there. There's so many choices in terms of books. And on top of the books, they have all these great trinkets that they sell. But the fact that it's there for you to peruse, I feel like I get lost in that store. Indigo has announced that they will open between two and four other U.S. stores as a part of this trial. But so far, we haven't heard where or when those stores are going to be. Indigo didn't respond to a quest for comment, but my guess is that it won't be too long until we hear about the next one. Here's hoping it's close to you. And whatever it is that we hear, it might just tell us what the future of the big bookstore is going to be. This episode of Annotated was written and produced by me, Jeff O'Neill. Sound editing and design by Kyle O'Neill. My thanks to Jesse Bogtes and Maria for getting out and exploring these pilot stores and for reporting back about what they found. You can find a link to the PowerPoint document Jesse made, including pictures, commentary, and that floor plan, in the show notes. I learned more in my 45-minute interview with Mike Shatskin about the book industry than I have in the last five years reading the internet. If you are interested in the nuts and bolts of the book trade, I highly recommend his website, idealog.com. He is also the co-author of the forthcoming The Book Business, which is being published on March 1st by Oxford University Press. I've already ordered my copy. I'm posting more or less frequently images and info relevant to these episodes on Instagram at annotatedfm. All right, that does it for now. Until next time, read something great. Read something great.